Well, good morning, or good evening, Hope, I should say, for that matter. Uh, good to be with you here. Uh, my name's Mark. I'm the director of Soul Care here at our church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn uh, to James chapter 1. And uh, it's a joy to talk to you about a subject that's near and dear to my heart, uh, something uh, beyond the pandemic, something that is going to be uh, effective and relevant to all of us, and it's this idea of, of suffering and We saw in this video that things, we live in times that are not what we are used to, not what we are accustomed to, and and yet the same is very true of the early church that we're going to look at here in James chapter 1. There's good things here for us, and and so to kind of prime us a little bit, I was thinking this week as I was chatting with my wife, uh, preparing for this evening, and uh, and, uh, coming up this fall uh, will be my birthday. I'm not going to tell you the day, but it's this fall. And a year ago this fall was my last birthday, if you're tracking with me. And my wife, uh, my lovely wife, who some of you know, decided to throw me a surprise party. And so I remember it perfectly. It was a Friday afternoon. It was about 2 o'clock. And uh, I'm sitting in my office, and I was chatting with one of my colleagues, and my phone rings. And uh, I'm looking at my phone, and it's 2 o'clock. And this is a peculiar time for my wife to call me. Uh, She knows my schedule, she knows my rhythm, she knows my routines and and all these types of things. And so she knows mid-afternoon is usually a heavy time. And uh, and so I look at my phone and I hit the green button and it's one of those calls that the screaming I can hear before the phone is even at my ear. And, uh, And if you know my wife, she's a passionate, dramatic, that's why I'm monotone and kind of unfazed by things. We work together well that way. And, uh, and, and, but the screaming on this phone was not coherent. It was painful. It was sharp. There was gasps for air. And, uh, and so I'm just trying to eliminate what I think could be happening. And uh, so I'm like, okay, can you see the kids? Like, are the kids okay? And, yep, okay, kids are okay. Uh, house, is it on fire? No, okay, house, well, those are the big ones at the top of my mind. You know, what, what could be going on? And I'm trying to, I'm going through relatives. I'm just like, Jen, like, and it's hard because she's trying to catch her breath and she's hysterical and, and, uh, and finally we whittle it down and, uh, and what she's trying to explain to me is, is that in the process of trying to get the surprise party ready, she had opened the front door of our house uh, to go to the car to get supplies out and uh, our little dog, Bauer, saw his best friend Axel across the road, who's a German shepherd, and at the same time he was crossing the road, so, so was a Nissan Rogue. Now, this is a heavy subject. We're talking about suffering. This is actually a fun story, so don't get caught up in the dilemma here. Um, so Bauer, as you can see, is particularly small. Nissan Rogue, my wife was able to tell me in all the hysterics, she knew the car was purple, which I found interesting. Everything else couldn't get out of her, but she could tell me the car was purple. And uh, we found out afterwards it was a Nissan Rogue. Uh, Big vehicle, uh, big rims, and and what we had found uh, was that Bauer, uh, while he is small and could fit under the car, uh, obviously tires are a different story. And so I'm thinking, okay, a purple SUV has crushed my five-pound dog. And I've got to go to the vet, and if it's still breathing, I have to make the decision to put it down. If it's still breathing and we have to put it down, I have to tell my four-year-old and my two-year-old why the dog that they've had their entire lives is no longer with us. I'm trying to think about how am I going to convince my wife that this wasn't her fault. All these things are going through my head, and I'm praying, and I'm going down the 407. And I get to the Baker Animal Hospital, and I'm praying as I hit the doorknob, and I open the door, and I open it, and I'm greeted by my five-pound fuzzy friend, Bauer. And I look at my wife, and I was like, you're sick. 
It's my birthday. (laughs) What's wrong with you? We're about to have a whole new kind of suffering if someone doesn't tell me what's going on right now. And, uh, And so what we had learned was Bauer had cleared the first wheel, the vehicle had gone over, and he had just run into the tire on the other side. And so his nose was scuffed, he had lost a few teeth, but he's the same kind of dizzy animal he always is. He's bouncing around and he's perfectly fine. And so we bring him home, and within minutes of being home, I had just given him the, the painkiller, because the doctor had said, you know, he's, his front of his face just got nailed by a Nissan Rogue, he's probably going to feel it for a little bit. So, uh, so I gave him a little medicine, and my dad, and I, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating, my dad, I think, Chuck Norris, the front door of our house. He didn't use the handle. I actually think he booted in the door. And I'm standing in the front hall, and I'm looking at my dad. I'm just like, what are you, what are you doing here? And he looks at me, and he was just like, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? And what I learned in that moment, and this is key for the illustration, not everyone can in- interpret my wife's hysterics. And the further the message got removed from my wife, the more deadly the message became to the point where by the time three or four phone calls later when my mom got it, it wasn't Bauer was hit by a car, it's Mark's dead at the side of the road. And so for the last two hours, my family is thinking I've been dead on my birthday of all days. And so my dad's looking at me, he's like, you didn't get hit by a car? And I was like, not that I'm aware of. You're healthy. I'm like, I feel great, you know? And so, you know, everyone's coming over for the surprise party, and one by one, you know, this is how kind of twisted I am, I hide in the kitchen. They think I'm dead, and so they come in, and my mom, my poor mom is crying, and she comes in the door, and and I just stick my head, I'm like, hi, mom. Just screams, you know, hysterical. You guys don't find it funny, I did. Um, You know, and so we're sitting around, the birthday party is blown, Uh, we're now just eating an insane amount of McDonald's food, and uh, we're sitting around the table, and we're all just kind of rehearsing what went through our minds when the phone messages came through. And what we learned was much like how broken telephone operates, the message gets befuddled, the message gets unclear, and it gets further removed from the actual situation by the time it gets to the end. We do the exact same thing in our suffering. We do the exact same thing that most Christians, most of the ones that I encounter, they use their suffering to inform their theology. When in actual fact, our theology should be what informs our suffering. Because here's what's happened, much like broken telephone, when we suffer, when we enter into trials, we become fixated. And when we become fixated, we begin to dwell, and the more we dwell, Jeremiah 17.9 says our hearts are deceitfully wicked, we become less and less objective as to what's going on. It's like broken telephone. We're no longer objective. We're no longer realistic. We're no longer thinking clearly. We're we're further and further, and with each day that goes by, we are further and further removed from the truth of what's happening. And as we sat around the kitchen table that night, and my poor mom, you know, counted the number of years that she thought she had lost in those two hours where she thought she was dead, we all kind of came to the same very conclusion that all of us, when suffering comes, we panic. It's a a horrible thing, especially in a pandemic. You consider all that's happening. Some of you uh, have lost financial security. Some of you have lost loved ones. I talk to a lot of students that graduated in the last six months, and there are no job prospects because of this. 
Life as we know it has changed. Suffering comes quickly and it never announces itself. And it's so important that we make sure our theology influences our suffering, not the other way around. As Christians, we have so much hope and we have so much practical help made available to us in God's word that we don't have to play broken telephone with our suffering. We can engage in it and we can inform it and we can still glorify the Lord in it if we have the right things in place. And this is exactly what James seeks to do. Uh, James is an incredibly practical book. Uh, I love it. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, Paul hammers faith. If you read Romans 1 to 11, Colossians 1 and 2, Ephesians 1 through 3, it's faith, 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 faith. That's all Paul wants to talk about is faith. John talks about love nonstop. He's the apostle of love. Peter talks about uh, purity. He talks about hope and purity. Jude talks about you know, right living. And, and James is just, how are we going to do this? He's my kind of guy. He's just like, let's get this done. Incredibly practical book. In fact, Ronald Blue put it this way in his commentary. Here is a right stirring epistle designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and convict, rebuke and revive, to describe, here it is, practical holiness and drive believers towards a goal of a faith that works. James is severely ethical and refreshingly practical. In other words, what James has for us here in this morning is not a muddied mess that we try to wade through. He gives clear deliverables for us as Christians for how we can navigate our trials. And so we see, if you have your Bibles, you can see right there in verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Tribes in the dispersion. Well, what is James talking about? There's trials and suffering that are happening for the very people who are reading this book. The tribes infers the Jewish tribes, 12 Jewish tribes. Dispersion implies that they've been spread out. And we know from history this is exactly what happened. There's a massive famine going on. There's all kinds of Hellenistic pressures from the outside world to have the church conform to itself. And on top of that, you have financial matters. The people around them, the people oppressing these Jewish Christians are wealthy, and they're using their wealth to attain power and authority to further oppress, and this is only just tearing at the fabric of the church. And so you have these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ scattered all over the Mesopotamian world, and their society is out to get them. There's no food and water to be found, and now the church is starting to be torn apart because of the pressure. And this is where James comes, and he just lays it out for us. Three things for us here this morning. It's going to be so practical. I hope you got a piece of paper and a pencil with you, because here we go. First thing that James lays out for us, number one, this is what our attitude ought to be in trials. Look at verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various meet trials of various kinds. So let's break this down uh, word by word here. He says, count it. In other words, consider this. Think of it differently. And so here's the problem with that statement. If you're at all like me, you don't enjoy suffering. You don't enjoy trials. And what James says right out of the gate is, if we're going to have a right theology in our suffering, we need to think about it differently. So think of it this way. Don't do as the world does. Don't, don't try to cover it up with money. Don't try to cover it up with experiences. Don't try to self-medicate. Don't try to further isolate yourself. Think of this. Think of this attitude. Consider this. He says, consider it joy. We're going to come back to that, my brothers. When you meet, there's that word again, the word meet. It's also the word face. 
In other words, you engage trials. We're not shying away. We're not looking the other way. We're not trying to, uh, to get out of it. Rather, we're meeting them. It's the same word that we find in the story of the Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan finds a beaten and bloodied body on the road. And what does he do? He meets them. He faces them. He doesn't pass by on the other side like his predecessors. He sees the situation through. He puts that body on his donkey, takes it, and he cares for it, and he sees the situation through. It's the same word that Paul uses when his his ship was wrecked. Paul didn't just plug his nose and throw himself overboard when his ship wrecked, as if that was at the end. He faced the trial. He endured it. He got through it. This is what James is telling us to do. We need to face them. We need to engage them. Why? Because there are various kinds. Various kinds of trials. You know, Peter, in the very next next book, he uses this same language a lot as well. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 1. This is verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, similar language, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is saying similar sentiments as James in that we can have joy in these various trials, not because we enjoy suffering, but because there's something bigger happening in the background. There's something bigger, there's something better, there's something beyond your immediate circumstance. That's why we can't play broken telephone. That's why we can't get zeroed in on the situation. God is much bigger and he's at work. And so consider it joy, my brothers, when you have various trials. Another word that comes up uh, in scripture, this one's probably more common, one that more readily uh, we can empathize with, is the word Paul uses, which is sufferings. Romans 5, this is what Paul says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice, there's that word again, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so what we have here is, again, another promise, this time from Paul in Romans, that we can have joy because there's something bigger happening in the background. Our attitude should be joyful because the situation is not simply just that. There's bigger things happening. But it still leaves the question, well, what is it? What's a trial? I believe Scripture gives us four ways that we suffer. And if you're a note taker, write this down. This is as practical as it gets. Here's the first way we can suffer through our sin. Our sin has consequences. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person in the room, there's not one person watching online who is holy, who is perfect. We all sin. And our sin has consequences. I remember back uh, literally a week before everything shut down, this is March break, I was sitting in the ER with my son. And those of you who know Callum, you know he's prone to all kinds of respiratory things. Uh, he's had pneumonia, he's, four, he's five now, but at the time he was four, and he has, he's had pneumonia three or four times in his life. He gets bronchiolitis. He basically doesn't go to school from January to April. <laughs> and so here we are back at the ER, we know the drill, and beside us are two 19-year-olds from the college around the corner who had just discovered that they were pregnant. 
And I sat beside them as they got the news, and I sat beside them as they processed that news. Were they remorseful? Absolutely. Were they scared? 100%. Would they have gone back and done it differently? I think so. Doesn't change the fact there's a body now. There's life. Our sin has consequences. When we step outside of God's order, we sin, and that inherently means we suffer. Here's the second way. Not only do we sin, we're called to repent of that. The second thing is other people's sin can make us suffer. We won't do it, but if I asked you to put your hand up, I bet each and every single person in the room tonight or watching online could think of at least one instance where someone else in their life really hurt them. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us about this and tells us that we're called to forgive. We're called to move past that, but it doesn't change the fact that it happened and we suffer. The third way that we suffer is by fact we live in a broken world. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world and with it came its effects. There's consequences to that. What God had created was now fractured. There's now chronic pain. There's chronic illness. There's death. I remember many, many years ago now, uh, I was... 16 years old, Christmas Eve. And by all accounts, it's the same Christmas Eve that we've had all the years previous. Me and my family, we go to the Christmas Eve service, we come back, we watch What a Wonderful Life, we have some snacks and go to bed. And we're watching A Wonderful Life and the phone rings and it's news that my grandfather has just had a massive heart attack and died getting into bed. I desperately was looking for something or someone to blame even if it was myself. It's no one's fault. We live in a broken world. We suffer sometimes because the world we live in is broken. Here's the fourth way we suffer. The demonic. 1 Peter 5.3 tells us to what? Or 5.8, sorry. Resist. Because your devil, your adversary prowls around like a lion seeking to devour and destroy. We resist, yes, but it still hurts. We still suffer. And so, yes, we're called to repent. Yes, we're called to forgive. Uh, Yes, we're called to adjust our expectations and look heavenward when we see our broken world. And yes, we resist the devil when he comes. But all of this is really hopeless if there isn't something bigger going on. And this is what James is drilling down to us. This is why we can have joy. This is why it's so important for us here this, this evening is to understand that our suffering is so much bigger than our experience. But all of our suffering happens within concentric circles. It happens within God's love, God's grace, God's providence. See, God is not ignorant to our suffering. Rather, he's in it. Here's the second thing. Not only is our attitude to be joyful, here's the second thing. The advantage we have in trials is that it happens in God's love, it happens within God's grace, and it happens within God's providence. Romans 8 tells us that he's working together all things for our good and that nothing can separate us from his love. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that God's grace is sufficient for our weakness. This is why we can have joy, friends. This is why we can be uh, passionate and suffer well. Not because, it's, not because it's fun, but because we have a God who's in it with us. 
We had, we're walking with a God who's aware of what's going on, whose love is perfect, whose grace is sufficient, and whose plan is broad enough to even encompass any of your areas of suffering. It's important we understand what joy actually means. Our world equates joy with happiness. It's not true. Happiness is an emotion that comes and goes. Joy is a choice. It's an attitude. Listen to what Kay Warren says uh, in her book, Choosing Joy. She says, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. That's providence. The quiet confidence that everything is going to be okay. That's grace. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. That's love. All of our suffering happens within God's love, within God's grace, and within his providence. And so here's what James says. Look at verse 3 and 4. Here's the, here's the advantage for us. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is not a new uh, piece of scripture. This is a a regular piece of scripture that tells us that the advantage of trials is that we gain something that we otherwise couldn't obtain if we didn't suffer. Proverbs tells us in chapter 17, verse 3, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Isaiah 48, 10, see, I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. You see, good things require hard work. Nothing comes cheaply in this world. But we know that there's an advantage in our suffering, both that it's happening in God's plan, that God's with us, he loves us, and his grace is sufficient. But we too benefit. We too grow. We grow in our steadfastness. We grow in our perseverance. And the words that James uses are that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Similar passage that you guys might recognize is Philippians chapter 1. This is verse 9 to 11, key word for us here. And Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, when James is saying perfect, mature, fully developed. Another word we see that Paul uses is approved. Testing requires approved, approval. We test something to see if it passes our standards. We, we're, we're tested to see if we're strong enough. And the, and the, the image that uh, James has in mind, as does Paul in Philippians chapter 1, is, is, a, is a similar one that would have been true to the times that these people were living in. You see, they were... Uh, in need, just like we are, of kitchen things from time to time. I don't know about you, but I've got a whole closet in our house devoted to kitchen things that we, I don't even know if we've ever used. It's a topic for another day, something you can take up with my wife. But they needed kitchen stuff, right? And so a potter would throw clay on a wheel, and he'd mold it into, say, a pot. And he'd take this pot, and he would put it in the kiln. He would bake it. And sometimes through impurities in that clay or through a, uh, a misshaping or the clay is uneven and it's too thin in a spot, that pot would crack. Cracked pot's no good. You put water in that, it's going to come right out. 
And so what potters would do to still make money on what they had built was they would put a wax resin in that crack, polish it up, and then paint and decorate over it, hoping that the person buying it wouldn't notice. People eventually found out what was going on because you bring water to a boil in a pot, what does wax do? It melts. So you have water now coming out of this pot. And so what people began to do was they would take the vessel before buying it, hold it on an angle, looking inside, and rotate it, and if the sunlight entered at any point, they knew this was not an approved vessel. This is the goal of suffering for us, friends, that we'd be approved, that as we're tested, we're, we're, we grow stronger. We become steadfast. Why? So that we would be an approved and useful vessel. We're not counterfeits. We're not showing up here on the weekend painted and ready to go, but on the inside cracked and fallen apart. The goal here is, is that through testing, we're approved. And as we're approved, we become full. We're mature. We're perfect. We're blameless. We're without need. It's an amazing concept, but how fast we lose that when we suffer. We become so fixated on what's happening and how we fix the problem that we forget that Behind all of this is an opportunity for, for my heart to grow. There's this personal spiritual advantage that I have when I suffer. Again, doesn't mean that it's not pleasant. Doesn't mean it's not painful. But there's an advantage. Here's the third thing. Not only do we have an attitude of joy, not only do we have an advantage because of our steadfastness and our growth, here's the third thing. There's assistance given for us. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." Here's the first point of assistance that God gives us. Righteous wisdom. When you are suffering, when you are in the throes of your trial, there is wisdom to be had. And I love the language that James uses here. This is not a stingy God. This is not a God who's up in heaven just looking for a reason to withhold things from you. We never get that sense anywhere. We're told he gives wisdom generously, beyond reproach, if we what? We ask in faith. Again, you see, James, the same problem that existed here is the same problem that I have in my life, is that when suffering comes, I got my one foot with the Lord, and I got my other foot in my own camp. That's a double-minded, unstable man. That's someone who can be easily swayed. That's someone who could be easily convinced. That's someone who's keen to play broken telephone. That's someone who's not looking at their suffering through a theological lens, but is looking at a fix-it mentality. How do I get out of this? We build our plans. We build our ways out of it. And what God is saying is, there's wisdom here for you if you ask and trust me in this. A couple pages over, James chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Listen to the kind of wisdom that's available to us. This is verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. I want peace. It's gentle. That sounds good. It's open to reason. 
full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like an oasis in the middle of your situation? In the middle of my sin, in the middle of others sinning against me, in the middle of a broken world where Satan is out to get me, isn't it good to think that through wisdom there's peace to be had? That there's something good and fruitful to come? We ask. We ask for it. God gives generously to us. But it's important we don't confuse our definitions. Wisdom does not mean I have the puzzle put together. There are just some things you and I will not know this side of heaven. But wisdom, what it guarantees is that we will have a sense of God's love, his direction, and his presence that will give us both the hope and the courage to respond obediently. That's what wisdom gives us. It helps us delineate what what would be a good direction and a bad one, not because of what I'm trying to do, but because of my proximity to God. That's wisdom. God wants to give you wisdom. Here's the second thing. Look at verse 9 to 11. This comes back to the economics as to what's going on. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here's the second point of assistance. First, we have righteous wisdom. The second thing is we have right humility. What James is telling to people here is, if you're poor, boast in what the Lord has given you. Boast of the hope you have, the salvation that he has given you, the grace that he has given to you. Boast of that. If you're rich, boast of what the Lord has done for you. Boast of the grace that you have, the salvation that he's given to you. In other words, take your eyes off the situation, take your eyes off the money and the pressures and all that, and understand what you have in common. It's your position in Christ. And here's why that's so important. You can't do that if you're not humble. You can't suffer well if you aren't humble. And this is what James is trying to teach to us here is if you're a humble church, you're going to be hopeful because you're going to remember your position in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that passage I referred to earlier that says my grace is sufficient for your weakness. Uh, God allowed that thorn to be put in Paul's side. Three times Paul asks, you know, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. And three times God with equal resolve says my grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient. The whole context of that, if you read chapter 11, it's Paul talking about the tension he has to boast, to be pride, pride, proud. And so God allows this thorn, why? So Paul would be humbled. So that if he's going to boast about anything, he's boasting about what? God's power made perfect in his weakness. You see, church, the most important thing that we can do when we suffer is to get low. The minute I'm trying to do it myself, I fall into pride, I fall into lust, I fall into fear. But if I'm humble, I'm going to be driven towards faith. And so here's the key question for us here this evening. Look at verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life with God as promised to those who love him. I think the question we need to ask ourselves, the so what this evening is, so what do I do with this? Are you steadfast? Are you maturing? Are you being filled? Are you being made perfect? Are you being made complete? It's a fairly straightforward question. You can learn a lot about someone based on how they suffer. And if that person perseveres, they're an approved vessel ready to be used by God. Unfortunately, as is unfortunately all too often the case in my life, I crack. And the wax comes out and I'm useless. James asks us a question here in verse 12. Are you steadfast? It's the steadfast who will get the crown of life. How do we suffer? Do we have the right attitude? Do we understand the advantage of what's going on? Do we tap into that assistance that God gives us? Are we steadfast? Here's what I would challenge us to do. Um, Before going... Uh, This is the practical side of me. This is the James coming out in me right now. Uh, As you leave, you will see some elders stationed outside, eager to pray with you. I don't know how you entered the building this evening. If you're watching online, I don't know what's going on in your home. But I do know we're a church of prayer. Don't leave tonight without having someone pray for you. Our elders are outside ready to do it. If you're at home, you can click that button. But we want to support you. We want to pray with you. And we want to pray that you would have the right attitude, that you would have the right context, the right advantage, and that you would tap into that assistance that God wants to give you. We want to practically meet your needs. And so pray. For some of us, before we go to bed tonight, we need to consider that question, am I steadfast, and maybe come up with some real tangible steps for how we're going to change the way we suffer. Doesn't make it doesn't make it any more fun. It's not painless. But there's advantages to be had when we have the right attitude. And so don't go to bed tonight without being accountable to someone. If it's your small group, if it's your spouse, if it's another relative or a best friend, get on the phone tonight. Be honest with that person and say here's how I think I need to change my perspective in these things. It will make all the difference. It'll make all the difference. The amount of times I look back on my life at the points in which I have suffered and I've made it so much worse out of my own stupidity when if I had put the phone down, taken a step back and seen the opportunity that was before me, There's a lot of hope and there's a lot of encouragement to be had. My hope is is that you'll have that here this evening. That you'll know that you are loved, that there's so much hope, and that God's plan is not ignorant to your plight. There's good things to come. So let's be steadfast. Let's hang tight. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Father, thank you that you know best, that you are God and I am not. Forgive me for how prideful I can become, how double-minded I can be 
and how quickly and a problem arises. I escape to be comfortable. I escape to be not bothered. And I forfeit opportunities to grow, to glorify you, to bless other people. God, your word tells us that if we belong to you, we will suffer. God, help us to do it well. God, help us to be authentic and raw. You're not ignorant to our suffering. You're not ignorant to the pain we're in. Your word tells us that you're our empathetic high priest, having been tempted in every which way. God, you get it. Would we be humble enough to approach you? Would you give us the wisdom need to respond obediently? And God, would you give us a heart that's, uh, that wants to be home, that wants to be with you? But until that time, would we suffer well? We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.